This is the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC at H Stebbings on Snapchat and brought to you by Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter. Now for the show today, I'm thrilled to welcome Michael Cardamone. Now Michael is the managing director of Accelerprise, a SaaS-focused accelerator based in San Francisco and backed by leading operators. He's also an advisor to and angel investor in many early stage SaaS companies. And prior to Accelerprise, Michael was one of the first 30 employees at Box in a business development role and then their partnerships in an ed tech company called Academics Direct. Now I have to thank Anthony Canada at Gainsight for the show today as it was Anthony who recommended Mike and then introduced us very kindly so a huge thank you to Anthony for that but without further ado I'm now delighted to hand over to Michael Cardamone at Accelerprise. Good that's perfect okay I think we're warmed up. Mike absolutely fantastic to have you on the official Sasta podcast thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be on. Now, I'd love to get started today by discussing how you made your way into the world of early stage SaaS and then how you came to to found Accelerprise. Yeah, so I I moved out to San Francisco in 2008 from New York after business school uh, specifically to get into into tech when a lot of my classmates were trying to get into investment banking, which were jobs that were quickly disappearing and, and consulting. Uh, but I focused my search on startups because I, I knew I wanted to get, you know, be in a situation where I would get more responsibility than I probably, frankly, deserved at the time and, and you know, wanted to be involved in all parts of the business. Uh, I was kind of lucky enough to end up at Box when it was about 25 people, um, which was an amazing experience. Uh, after I spent some time there, I moved into another startup in the ed tech space um, where I helped them grow to about $30 million in revenue. And just along the way, became really intrigued by the clear but relatively early shift to the cloud uh, and felt like you know there was a really big opportunity to help build the next generation of great enterprise software companies. Um, and rather than do that one company at a time, I started to look at the accelerator model and started to look at the accelerator landscape. And you know there were obviously highly successful generalist accelerators like YC and Techstars and 500 Startups. But as I looked across the country, there were really only a few focused on enterprise software, focused on SaaS. Um, so I started socializing the idea of launching a SaaS-focused accelerator in San Francisco with my network. Um, and I figured if I could pull in enough great operators who have had you know, had experience scaling and, uh, and starting SaaS companies, and we kept the cohort sizes small so we could be really hands-on, we could add a lot of value for these early-stage SaaS founders. Uh, and so once I got a critical mass of great people who wanted to get involved as both investors and mentors... People like Nick Mehta, who's been on your show, uh, Rowan Trollope, who's a senior exec at Cisco, Karen Appleton Page, who was my boss at Box, was one of the first hires there and was there through the IPO, and Teen Zuo, who was one of the first 10 employees at Salesforce and started Zora. You know, we decided to go for it. One of the few accelerators that was focused on enterprise software at the time that did exist was Accelerprise in Washington, D.C., and I had developed a relationship with them as a mentor for some of their companies. And so when I was starting this, uh, I decided to team up with them on it. And so what we did is we, you know, we basically just licensed their brand and had some shared resources, but we raised our own fund, had our own GPs, and, and ran it separately out here in San Francisco. Um, they've actually since decided to pause the DC program, so Accelerprise is now only in San Francisco. Um, so we launched the San Francisco program a little over two years ago. We're now in our fifth cohort. Uh, we invest 50K for 5% and have invested in over 40 companies to date who are either pre-revenue or have had early revenue. And we work closely with them over a four-month program to help them with go-to-market strategy, help them accelerate traction, and help them build scalable and repeatable sales processes. So that's kind of the, the background on 
you know, how I got into SaaS, uh, and you know, how we ended up starting Excel prize out here in San Francisco. What a brilliant and succinct summary of your life. Uh, thank you. Thank you uh, for doing that so well. I do have to pick up on one point and I'm sure you get it a lot, but I have to ask it is you mentioned your time at box. So what were the big takeaways from watching box scale into the hyper growth mode that it did? Um, and what were your big learnings from that experience? Yeah, I mean, there were so many. There were a lot. Um, I'll, I'll focus on two that I think kind of stand out for me. One was just you know the importance of building culture and how much the culture starts with the CEO. Um, I you know when you look at Aaron, uh, he was you know incredibly high energy. He worked incredibly hard. Was a ton of fun to be around, um, and and was always at the office. In fact, I don't even know when he slept. To be honest, <laughs> he was always there. And then he also had this like unwavering confidence about building box into into a huge company. I actually just a quick anecdote I actually remember when I was interviewing with him in 2008, when it was 20 something people, I asked him what his long-term plans were with box. And he told me even then that he planned to build it into a public company. And I think he just, he instilled that, that sort of work ethic and energy level and kind of fun spirit and, and confidence in the team. And it really created a a great culture, um, where everyone was like, you know, really working hard, holding each other accountable, but you know, having a ton of fun and, uh, at the same time. So I think, you know, culture was one and, and the importance of that and the importance of the CEO kind of, uh, you know, pushing that and, and setting, setting the example there. And then the other one I think was, you know, really to, to punch above your weight. So, you know, at the time there were a lot of other upstart kind of cloud storage and collaboration solutions. Uh, but instead of focusing, you know, any messaging or marketing, or even just in general, focusing on them, uh, we instead went after the, the large incumbent, the kind of gorilla in the room, um, you know, with, with SharePoint and, you know, Microsoft, uh, and we did a billboard, um, where we compared ourselves to them and talked about how, you know, how terrible SharePoint was. We did a lot of PR around it. Um, we had a lot of messaging around it and it immediately put us in the conversation with a large, with the largest company in the space and, and made us appear a lot bigger than, than we were at the time. Um, which, you know, at the time, I don't know if I realized how important that was, but looking back on it, I feel like that was a big, you know, turning point in kind of, uh, you know, the, evolution of box mm-hmm. absolutely and i want to move now to to your work with Accelerprise. and and as you said you've worked with 40 plus companies i think going from pre-revenue to early traction so i slightly want to walk through that journey today and obviously we have to start with the product one common problem for founders is knowing when to ship so what's your take on this i often have founders kind of debating and debating for months about whether it's ready or not what's your thesis on this yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer in in just getting you know getting something out as quickly as possible and getting meaningful feedback from customers, uh, or even better, you know, figuring out if if there's any willingness to pay. Um, I think too often founders wait and wait, and they're you know they're perfectionists. They want a great product to be out there, and uh, and so you know they hesitate to ship it and they hesitate to get it in the customers' hands, and they they rely just on talking to customers, which which is great. You should obviously talk to a lot of customers, but the best way to get real genuine feedback is to get something in the customer's hands and have them play with it and see if it actually solves a pain point for them. And so, you know, I, am a big believer in, you know, ship, ship early and often get feedback as quickly as possible and then iterate as quickly as possible. If you don't have customers that are immediately willing to pay for it, does that suggest that you don't have product market fit? What's your take on that? No, not at all. I, you know, I think pricing is, is one of those really tricky things 
in the really early stages. You know, I think, you know, generally the way I look at it is if you're selling to S and B and you're going to try to take more of a bottoms up strategy, like box did in the early days, um, giving some version of a way for free, uh, early on just to get adoption could work as it'll allow you to figure out like, what are the triggers that will get people to pay along the way? Um, and let you get feedback. If you're selling more to mid market right out of the gate, I think it's important to at least start the conversation with you trying to charge them. Uh, if they end up, you know, talking you down on the price, but they're an important customer for you, at least that gives you leverage to then go back and negotiate on other things that are important to you. Like, hey, I'll come down on the price, you know, if you're willing to give me consistent feedback or a testimonial or a case study or other things that will be critical for you in the early days. Um, so, you know, it doesn't doesn't have to be paying, but start with paying, start with trying to get them to pay and then, you know, go from there and use that as leverage to negotiate on, on other items. But I don't think it's necessarily always an indicator of product market fit, whether they pay or not. I think that really comes a little bit later once you have more like 10, 20 plus customers who are paying and, and are big fans of the product. Uh, I, I had Justin uh, Khan from YC on the show uh, recently, and he said you can tell when you have product market fit because it's when the 10 people that you don't know buy the product. Do you agree with that in terms of kind of external network connections, buying the product as a sign of product market fit? Yeah, I do. I think you know, often naturally your first handful of customers come from your network, and sometimes you know, those are they're doing it because they know you. Um, so I think getting unaffiliated customers is, is really important and getting them to pay for it. Um, and having, you know, some sort of repeatability around that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You mentioned freemium products there. I'm intrigued as to your thesis on trial periods. I've come across more and more startups recently that don't offer trial periods at all. What do you advise your companies in Accelerprise with regards to trial periods? And does that differ according to customer segment they're selling to? Yeah, I think it does. I think, you know, again, if you're selling to kind of SMB and it's more of a self-served type of sale, then I think, you know, then I think a trial is, is appropriate. And, and, you know, a lot of companies have had a lot of success doing that. I think as you start getting into more, you know, larger SMB or mid market or even enterprise trials, trials are okay. As, as long as you like clearly define what is a successful pilot or trial look like for them and what's the time frame around it. Um, so that when you get to the end of it, it's, it's pretty black or white and pretty clear as to like, did we hit you know, what you wanted, did we hit the goals and the ROI that you wanted us to hit? Was this successful? Let's convert. In, in a lot of cases, we actually try to get our companies to, to do where, where they'll sign a, an annual contract. And if they want to do a 30 day pilot, um, rather than do a 30 day pilot, then try to negotiate the annual contract, negotiate it up front, get them to sign an annual contract and just have an out clause in the first 30 days. Again, clearly defining what is that, what does success look like in the first month, but then you don't have to go back and negotiate the annual contract at the end of it. And, and it just becomes a more fluid part of the contract, uh, having the pilot as, as just part of an annual contract. And with the contract and the pricing, I've heard you say before that founders can charge more than they think. So, so how can they test the limits without scaring off potential leads, do you think? Yeah. I mean, so look, so the first few customers, in my mind, pricing is not as important. Just get people to pay something. But once you start closing customers, founders then are often, I find, are often timid about trying to charge more. Um, and if you're solving a real pain point and you actually start to think about what's the value you're creating for your customer or the amount you're saving for them, um, 
I think you'll often realize that you can charge more more than you were originally thinking. And so then I think what you need to do is start looking at your pipeline and saying like, okay, who are the the kind of lower priority leads and or opportunities in the pipeline, and and start testing and pushing the limit on pricing with them where. Uh, you know, if they walk because of the pricing, it's, you know, not the end of the world for you and really start to test to see if you can get that pricing up. Absolutely. How can they make sure then that their pricing fits with their sales strategy, do you think? Yeah. So this is, you know, this is a question that comes up a lot with, with our companies and with other SaaS companies I, I talk to. And I, I always go back to pretty simplistic way of, of looking at it. It's a quick back of the envelope calculation that I actually kind of learned from, from Teen Zuo when he came in and did some roundtables with us here at Excel Prize. And so I think, you know, the big thing is if you're looking at, at trying to scale with an inside sales team in order to have kind of scale more repeatable sales strategy, uh, a sales rep should be able to book at least kind of 4X in ARR in a year versus, you know, what their all-in comp is. So if you look at a sales rep making 150K all-in, uh, they should be able to book about 600000 in ARR in a year. Uh, so if your average contract value is $10,000, you know, given your customer profile and your sales cycle, do you think it's reasonable that a sales rep can, you know, who's fully ramped can close five new customers in a month? If so, you know, that's great. Then, then you might have something there. If not, which is, you know, often we find that sales reps can't close as much as the founder thinks they should, you know, can you charge more per customer or can you go upstream and try to get into larger deals? Or do you have to create more of a self-serve sales model in order to make this work and make it scalable and repeatable? And so, you know, I know it's a simplistic way to look at it, but I think it's a great way to quickly get a sense of whether your pricing model is going to scale with your intended sales strategy, given you know who your customers are, who you're selling to, and what the sales cycle is. What ACV do you think justifies an inside sales team? Uh, you know, it's, it's different for a lot of products. I think generally, you know, what we see is 20, you know, 15, 20,000. Um, you can do it with lower, but then you often have to do it in markets where sales reps are a little bit less expensive, uh, or you just need to have a really frictionless sales process and not a very long sales cycle, uh, to make, to make the numbers work. But, you know, I think the more complex the sales cycle is, uh, and, and the more high touch the sales process is, um, the higher that needs to be. Uh, we've actually jumped a step here though, in, in assuming that the founder and the sales process is run by a sales team or the founder itself. So what's your take on the need for founders to sell the product themselves? And at what stage do you think they should look to hire their first sales reps? Yeah, so I'm a big believer in that the founders have to sell initially. Uh, In fact, I've actually written a number of blog posts where I interview SaaS founders who recently went from, you know, no revenue to their first 500,000 in ARR. And every single time they close, you know, the founders close at least the first, you know, couple hundred thousand in ARR on their own uh, before bringing on any sales hires. And I think, I think that's just, it's so critical for the founders to, to have so many conversations with customers. It'll help shape the product. It'll help shape the sales process, sales strategy, shape pricing that to bring on a sales rep sooner than that, um, when you yourself don't know how to sell or what the right messaging is, or, you know, if you have the right product, I think is a little bit premature. And, and so, you know, with that said though, most founders don't have a sales background. Uh, and so I think they just need to be relentless in learning how to sell, uh, by reading everything they, they can get their hands on tapping into mentors who have done it before or, or leveraging advisors or investors or accelerators, um, to really kind of hone their skills on the sales side so that they can close 
that first, you know, 150, 200, 300,000 in ARR before they start bringing on sales reps. And before they start kind of plunging themselves into the sales cycle, are there any questions that they should be really asking themselves before they enter the cycle? Yeah, I mean, so they really need to figure out who their ideal customer profile is. And, and oftentimes they have assumptions around this. And, you know, maybe they'll have just one assumption and they think they know it and they go out and start doing that. But I think they really need to come up with several assumptions of, like, who is that ideal customer profile and and test who, who it ends up actually being. Because sometimes it's, it's different than what you think initially. Um, and then, you know, they really need to understand what motivates the buyer. And, and I mean, uh, on like an individual basis, um, it's a mistake I see founders make a lot is they don't take the time or ask the right questions in the sales conversations to really understand, you know, why are they buying your product? Like, how is that individual actually measured internally and what do they care about? You know, how, how does what you're building help them achieve what they care about? Uh, versus just listing features that your product has, which I see a lot of founders do. Um, and then really owning that sales process. You know, how do you create urgency and accountability throughout it? So, you know, again, take the time to get really good at sales. Uh, it can be, it can be a big, you know, make, it can be all the difference in the world when you're trying to get early traction as a, as a founder. And, and I think you really need to kind of understand who's your ideal customer profile, what's the right messaging for them, and then, you know, really understanding uh, what drives someone to buy. I speak to many early stage SaaS founders and a lot of them obviously with their product think that it's applicable to everyone. Um, so in terms of a customer profile, how important is it to have a very, very focused uh, customer profile or can it be slightly broader than that with three or four potential avatars? Yeah, so I think I think you should have multiple potential customer profiles in the beginning because like I said, I think it's really hard to know exactly who, like, not only what type of company and what size of company, but who within that company is going to be the ultimate ultimate buyer uh, of your product. And so, I think having multiple personas that you go after or multiple profiles that you go after is is really important in the beginning. Can I ask, in, in the beginning, is a sale not a sale? Uh, I've heard you say before about the importance of influential customers early on, uh, but it is kind of all money, not green, and it's about getting as many dollars in as possible. How impactful do you think these big brands can be to have as customers? Yeah. So look, in the, in the beginning, a sale is a sale and it's really helpful, but I think there's two pieces to it that are, that are nuanced about that. Um, one is selling a company and then have and then not focusing on making them incredibly happy with your product is a huge mistake. Um, like you need to make sure that when you sell anyone that you over invest in making sure that they are raving fans of your product. So that's first and foremost. The, the second piece of it is like, yeah, a sale is a sale, but uh, if you're, you know, looking at where you should focus your energy, focus on influencers within your customer profile, right? Like whether it's individuals or or specific companies, people who are influencers speak at conferences, they talk to other buyers. Um, they're, they're influencers for a reason and, and getting them to close and getting them to be really happy customers is going to be much more impactful than just getting a customer. You know, at the end of the day, when you're in the early stages, you just want to get happy customers. But if you can get one that's an influencer, uh, it'll just be that much more impactful for you. And I'd love to dive into a quick fire. We call it 60 seconds faster. So 60 seconds per answer. What do you think? Let's do it. <laughs> so let's do scrappiness. Good or not as it just simply isn't really that scalable as you increase in size? Uh, a must in the beginning. You, ha- you have to be scrappy. And then I think you just have to be aware of, of your scrappiness. 
so that as you start to scale, you, you still kind of instill some of that mentality in the culture if you want to, but, but you focus more on building processes that are scalable and repeatable. What's the most common challenge you face with your companies at Accelerprise? Yeah, I mean, I think the most, the most common challenge for any early stage company that's pre-seed, pre-raising much money, um, is getting those first 10 to 20 unaffiliated customers, right? And so, and then, you know, more importantly, making sure that they're raving fans of your of your product. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's probably the most common challenge for any early stage SaaS company and, and certainly like an area we spend a lot of time helping our companies with. What is your favorite SaaS reading material? Uh, you know, of course, uh, of course, Saster. I read read a lot, uh, <laughs> and this podcast. Well um, said, brilliant. Yeah, I, I you know I read Thomas Tungus' blog quite a bit. As for books, I really liked Mark Roberge's book, The Sales Acceleration Formula, um, and you know I'm actually reading. Uh, from impossible to inevitable right now by Jason and, and Aaron. I so, that. you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a big, you know, I'm always trying to read and learn and get better at what I do. Mm-hmm. And then entrepreneur optimism, let it run or should it be something that we should be wary of? Yeah. So I think, you know, it's always good to be optimistic as an entrepreneur. You, you know, you're, you say you, you, you know, how many times do you hear no from a customer and investor along the way? Like you almost have to be optimistic to, to make it work and, and stay kind of focused focused on what you're doing. Um, but with that said, I, I see a lot of founders because they hear no so many times, they have a really good conversation, you know, initial conversation with a customer and they just get really optimistic about it. And they think, yeah, you know, this is definitely going to close. It was such a good conversation. And, you know, it's, it's usually not as easy as that. Usually you have to think through more of the sales process. And so founders just need to be careful to temper that a little bit. Um, when they're talking to customers or even investors and just plan accordingly. Uh, you don't want to get stuck putting too many eggs in one basket um, because of that. Fantastic. And then uh, one more question, but away from the quick fire. So don't worry, 60 seconds is off the stopwatch. Um, All right. Before we discuss the sales process and ideal customers. So before we finish, I have to touch on the sales funnel. And at such an early stage, how important is it in terms of measurement and optimization of the sales funnel? And, and how much of a role does iteration really play when kind of examining the results of that sales funnel? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's incredibly important to measure every aspect of the sales funnel, even, even really early when the volume at each stage is, is probably not even high enough to justify uh, kind of making, making decisions based on it. But I think you just want to, you know, doing that early helps drive that sort that sort of, you know, very data driven approach to sales and marketing as you scale. Um, it also, from our standpoint, like, you know, working with so many different early stage companies, we start to see benchmarks throughout the funnel of like, you know, where are you on outbound, you know, outbound campaigns to driving demos, demos to trials, demo, you know, trials to close customers. And so, as our companies start doing that, we can start to see how are they doing against those benchmarks and start to figure out like, is this a messaging problem? Is it a product problem? Like, you know, what can we fix? How can you iterate on, you know, the sales conversations? How do you iterate on the acquisition channels? So, uh, I think it's you know incredibly important to, to drive all of that sort of thing. In terms of the messaging, is it a very obvious case of when you've got it right and when it's not working, or, or are there kind of uh, a middle ground whereby it just takes a little bit of iteration and tweaking and it's almost there? Yeah, I think when you nail it, it's it's usually pretty obvious. But most of the time, like you get it, you get it if you get it right, um, you're closing some customers, and, and then it's a matter of like, can you just can you close incrementally more or 
shorten the sales cycle by a little bit more by saying certain things or doing certain things. And so I think you can almost always iterate on it. Like it's never, it's probably never perfect, but I think, you know, once you start being able to close customers and and your messaging is resonating with people, you've at least got some semblance of, of the right messaging. Well, Mike, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, really excited for the future of Accelerprise, um, and, and I can't wait to see that grow. But thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today. No problem. Thanks so much for having me on, Harry. It was, it was my pleasure. So fantastic to have Mike on the show today. And again, I'd like to say a huge thank you to him for giving up his time today to appear on the show. And a huge thank you to Anthony Canada at Gainsight for making the show possible with his introduction. And if you want to stay in the wonderful world of Sasa, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs. Or you can follow the main man, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK. Or simply head over to Sasta.com, that's S-A-A-S-T-R.com, where you'll find a whole load more podcast episodes and fantastic articles. As always, we so appreciate your support and look very forward to bringing you next week's shows.